welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Joel Conico, a family practitioner who specializes in the treatment of pain. Thanks, Tom. I'd like to welcome Joel to the show. We, we just did a podcast with him that aired last week, and he's a family practitioner. He practiced headache and pain for many, many years. He and I worked together for about eight years with the last eight years of his career. He retired about a year and a half ago, um, and it's about the time that I also, his, his retirement actually was a factor in me retiring. We had a great team going with the two of us working with the non-operative care project, hand managed medications, we decided whether the person needed surgery or not. And we just had a great thing going. So it was really a pleasure to work with him. And in the first podcast, Joel you know, shared his evolution about treating chronic pain and some of the methodology. And what I wanted to concentrate on this time is what he actually did with patients that seemed to be so effective. And we briefly talked about what's called motivational interviewing, which allows people to be heard and also meet them where they're at, which is a big factor in treating chronic pain. But Joel, welcome back, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, David. You're welcome. So, Joel, we talked about last episode about the motivational interviewing and helping really to listen to people. And it's sort of obvious in any field, you have to understand the problem before you can solve it. So motivational interviewing is basically listening to people, hearing their story, trying to decide where they're at. And if they're not ready, they're not ready. But I think you had a really gift for waiting people out and just simply giving them time. So I'd like to ask you some of the questions about some of the specific tools that you used with patients in addition to motivational interviewing that seemed to help them move forward. Um, Sure. Um, Well, that motivational interviewing came later as 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 I said toward toward the end of uh, that and um uh, its importance and even before that uh, but before that it was really the doc project that you developed that really started the process um but I want to say to go back really to med school and this is something that is 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 really really important uh and that is that the basics that we all learned in med school a history and a physical exam, those were the really keys that began, if you will, uh, uh, well, not to unlock, but to, to to move this forward because to take, as I said, I spent an hour, often it was, usually it was more, frankly, over 50% of patients. I mean, I, I couldn't do it in an hour. It was, a, you have know, complex pain problems and a half hour follow-up and that often was 35 to 40, say 40 to 45 minutes, not always, but often it was good 35 to 40 minutes so um, because it just takes time and so giving people their voice was huge but that initial comp history and physical exam the begin to give people a space to express their story and that was really key the, the story and um, so that was the, the foundation and then uh, the testing and if I thought they had a structural or non-structural problem or a disease or was just the the pain pathways causing pain that was huge and that would dictate treatment so um that was the big that was that's always been the baseline and uh and um that's that 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 skill and practice is is being lost but 
we we used it. I used it at the clinic as, and it was um, the basis of everything we did. Right. I mean, what's pretty frustrating right now in modern medicine has become basically a production line. And I actually quit my practice because, you know, I saw so many people being badly hurt by spine surgery. And basically, there's quick visits, random treatments offered. Often spine surgery is offered without any rehab at all beforehand. And one simple example is, for instance, we know lack of sleep actually causes chronic pain. It's not, I mean, it just flat out causes it. And so we would be offering surgery and people hadn't slept for a year or two or longer. And so simple things like sleep were a big deal. But I'd like to ask you a couple things about, I know one thing that I think changed for you, maybe you've done it before, that for me personally, I've been in chronic pain myself for at least 15 years, maybe longer. And it's when I started the simple writing exercises that all of a sudden within two weeks, my pain started to shift. And I know that initially the expression of writing exercises to you were sort of a mystery. You weren't totally sold on those. And then you made a really succinct comment about two years ago that if somebody decides to do the writing and not throw it away, if they hold on to their writing, they simply hold on to their pain. So I'd like to have you discuss your experience with the expressive writing from your perspective. Yeah. Well, personally, it began to help me because two things happened. One, we were working together. And within that first year to year and a half, I was at the, I call it the clinic, the Swedish Pain Services. We, you just, you, Howard Schubiner published his, I think, seminal study from the work he was doing about, called, and, and the book, Unlearn Your Pain, but that was that first article um, that you passed around to all of us and we talked about and we had a conference about it where we understood that the right paying attention and doing the writing was important in changing the chemistry in the brain, which was powerful. Right. Um, and that was, that was the paradigm shift that we finally knew what we were looking at in terms of people who are having this chronic pain that we couldn't find anything, you know, anything wrong. There was a book uh, you know, by Dr. Clark, they can't find anything wrong. But right. it was Dr. Schubiner's and your work that made me understand the power of the writing. So when, when that happened, I, I was, um, we were developing a pilot program at the, at the clinic uh, about, uh, and uh, the particulars aren't important at the moment. But so I started studying that whole literature, practicing it myself, and I discovered that my back pain was would be able to be under much better control um, with, uh, you know, it was just a common kind of thing. It would bother me. There were ups and downs. But so I discovered the power of it myself. That was a huge uh, epiphany. And then I saw patients who, who did that work really get better. And I would say there are two kinds of work that I've learned subsequently from Dr. Penny Baker. Um, who, who uh, we, we met uh, uh, through a conference you arranged. Um, one is to tell your story and to rewrite it over time, how it changes. And that's kind of, it's more than a journal, but it's rewriting the story. Right. But the, the, the work that mostly I had, I had people do would be to write down the things that troubled them the most. Eventually it could be some good things, but the things that bother them, the, the anger they had, and just let it out and just stream of consciousness, just let it go. And, and, and it, I think that work came from Dr. Burns. I learned it through you. Um, but um, 
and it became powerful. And I started to see that the people weren't getting better, and they say, hey, I've been doing the writing, Doc, you know. And I'd start asking, well, are you tearing it up? Well, no, really, not, no. So I'd have them, I said, well, you know, just give it a try. I know it's like sacred stuff, but give it a try, tear it up. And much of the time when they did that, I mean, none of this is a panacea. I'd say it worked 80% of the time, plus or minus 10, if right. they were doing it, plus other right. other things. But if it was going to work, it was going to work generally better if they tore up the, the tore that up because you want to, you're looking for something new. You want to, you don't want to get rid of the memories because that's disingenuous. But right. you want to get rid of the 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 affective energy that's driving all this, right? And changing it. So um, the, I just found it was just on a practical level much more effective. Well, what I found about with the expressive writing, you know, the the Doc Project, which by the way stands for Define Your Own, um, Direct Your Own Care. Basically, it's outlined mm-hmm. on the website backincontrol.com. But basically, the bottom line is that people people can get better without doing the writing exercises, but they don't really get better. In other words, we get to see people who don't write, don't want to write, and they can get better, no question about it. But as far as really making a dramatic difference, I tell people that the expressive writing is the one, basically, I use the word mandatory step to really launch the process. Mm-hmm. And you and I had, and David Talbot had, dinner one night with Dr. Penny Baker. Dr. Penny Baker mm-hmm. started the original research in the early 1980s. He and another gentleman, Dr. Joshua Smythe, wrote a book called Opening Up by Writing It Down. And he presents the depth of the data behind the expressive writing, and it is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There's over a thousand research papers that document that some type of expressive writing makes a difference, a huge difference. Athletic performance, student grades, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, skin healing, wound healing. It's unbelievable. So remember, you and I asked, well, we asked him, well, first of all, do you still think it's the right thing to do? And he says, yes, of course. He's still doing research on it. And then we asked him, well, why do you think it works? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> so, it, yeah, and it doesn't really matter why it works. I mean, you can postulate all sorts of stuff. My postulate is that you tear it up for two reasons. One is the right with freedom, positive or negative. And the second thing is the you're not your, so they're just thoughts. And if you want to analyze them and go over them over and over again, basically your brain's going to develop where every place it's attention. So in terms of neuroplasticity, keeping the thoughts and analyzing them is a huge problem. And when you tear them up, you're not getting rid of these thoughts because there's trillions of thoughts, but you're simply writing them down. And to me, it's sort of a metaphor for separating. And and that's mm-hmm. it. Yes. Yes, I think you've struck, that's, that's what... Um, I think that's what the tearing up does. It separates. And we also know, we don't know why, but we know that it changes. Um, it unlearns that because pain is a learned process. We know right. that from uh, uh, Dr. Apkarian who came, and we know that from others, um, Dr. Mosley, but Apkarian has done so much, Dr. Apkarian has done so much work in that. And right. that's why Howard Schubiner, Dr. Schubiner's book is Unlearn Your Pain, because it is a, it's a learned process. It's, it's, it's negative learning in a sense, you're, right. but but it is but it is learning and and there's neuroplasticity and that's what this is based on. The writing we know from Dr. Schubiner's work and the fMR studies that he incorporates in his work that that changes that brain physiology uh, so that it's the descending pathways are working better. Right. So, well, we yeah. also know that unpleasant thoughts, obsessive thought patterns, become really embedded in your brain very deeply. <laughs> 
And Dr. Yeah. Smythe and Dr. Pennebaker also have done work on obsessive thought patterns. So even things that are forbidden, that you say, you know, if you're an upright person, you just sort of toss these thoughts aside. Well, what happens anytime you give, anytime you suppress a thought, you've given it neurological attention, you've made it worse. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the, the, what the writing does allows you to get the thoughts out there and separate and not suppress them. And every human being has to deal with this. We have what I call the curse of consciousness. And with all the research done with unpleasant, repetitive thoughts, the consciousness, et cetera, the only tool that seems to break this stuff up is some type of writing exercise. It's yeah. remarkable. So, so, so you saw the same thing I did that the, how critical expressive writing was. No question about it. I mean, we could work with, you know, we worked with sleep when people came in, even if it took some, uh, tried to use non-habituating non, uh, substances, but sleep, as you pointed out in your introduction, I think, and uh, uh, that was, but I think without the writing, I felt the writing was more important, right. um, certainly at the beginning, than uh, uh, even the, the movement work that ultimately would help be helpful, the mindfulness work, all of it was important, but I think that I found without the writing, there was much less success. Right. Um, no question about it. Well, there's a bunch of details that you and I both have worked on over and over again with forgiveness, relaxation, play, et cetera. But I'd like to just uh, really spend the rest of the time on your approach to opioids, which I thought was unusually effective. And mm. my feeling is that the essence of healing chronic pain is feeling safe. And my approach inadvertently when I was doing this on my own in Sun Valley was that whatever opioid a person was on when they came in to see me, that's what they were on. They just kept on those things. And I didn't understand the role of safety and pain, but I did know that somehow the first thing I want to do is establish a patient-physician relationship. And if the first thing I brought up was we're going to decrease your opioids, people didn't feel safe. And so my thing was I had people and so did you on hundreds of milligrams of morphine a day, come off all medication and go to pain free and no opioids. And so, but the key issue from my perspective is that we gave them control. In other words, they would wean down on their terms and we won't get into this big battle about opioids. They had to be accountable. And you were really excellent at this. So I'm just curious some of your thoughts on how you approach opioids versus sort of the government's approach and medicine's approach of just simply restricting them, which I think is the worst thing to do for people yeah, in chronic yeah. pain. Yeah. I, can I do that one? La can I address that last, if I may? Since sure. It was the last thing. Yeah, because I think it's a hard way to start. Um, I, I, what, what I discovered, and you and I would talk about this a lot, and, and as well as with Dr. Irving, and it was always hard to know what the right timing was, but I think what you said is is, is what worked the best. There were, there were, I think, three categories. One was someone who, let's just say, if there was clear evidence of actual addiction, then then the, it was very different how we had to handle people. Right. So let's say absent that, let's say the addiction per se was ruled out, and that's not always easy, but let's just say that because that the people in that situation that was more del it just has to be handled more delicately right but say there was you felt there was no addiction there was just habituation there was they they were taking the opioids they were on them for a long time didn't know how to get off of them and it would be dependent on them not addicted so the, the, and there also it was the timing was key and 
um, if it, they weren't on an unsafe dose and there weren't unsafe combinations, I, I too would would allow them to stay on them a time and give that space for the relationship develop right. to develop. And I think that was really really important. It wasn't a stand, it wasn't um, standardly done because most do- many doctors, even in the pain management, have a unconscious reaction that they're not even aware of to people on the opioids and that's true not more true now right so without without that reactive but just responding and letting them know that like you said they're in a safe place then we could do something about it um and and the third is people who just really wanted to drop off were really unhappy with them and that was an easier process but most, i'd say 60 to 80% say 70% plus or minus 10 of people who came in really were using those as a crutch and and it was a process to get them off of it and then the timing we'd had people you and i took care of somebody who i think she had been with you for a year or two before i saw her cuz I, I, I and then we worked with her and she came off opioids she was pain free and she did quite well right um I mean, I've seen people um, over a thousand milligrams of morphine equivalents a day. One person over fifteen hundred milligrams a day come mm, off all medications, mm. no pain. But see, the thing, what happens right now with the sort of arbitrary restriction? First of all, many primary care physicians, as you know, won't prescribe opioids, and I don't blame right. them. I mean, there's all sorts of restrictions that are sort of arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Right. But see, my, right. I think our perspective is that the biggest problem in chronic pain is the anxiety, and to me, the mental pain is a bigger problem than the physical pain. The problem is we go into this opioid battle from the beginning, it increases anxiety, and you have no chance of coming off the opioids. And that's where I think um, that the expressive yeah. writing would start to break up the circuits. They would start to feel safe. Again, you talked about it on the prior podcast that listening is a big deal because you, because the patients feel safe as they feel safe and comfortable with you and they maintain yeah. control of yeah. their own destiny. Then the pain starts to drop down and they don't, want to be in the opioids because the side effects start to kick in the gear. Right. Yes. And there's something that I learned from a psychologist that we, we had a meeting after hours one time, late afternoon to early evening uh, for a couple hours um, early on when I came there. And I don't remember the name of the psychologist, but he he I came away with something that was so helpful to me. And this is what happens with opioid patients. So the idea, his statement was, the pro- the pa- the problem isn't the pro- the problem is the problem, not the patient. The patient is not the problem, and so it, so we'd say, you know, this is this this is a difficult patient, whatever. My language would be, this person has a difficult problem, right? And so, when the person feels blamed for taking opioids, when they're 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 perceiving that they're under that threat, they're going to be defensive. Right. It's just unconscious, normal reaction. Right. And so understanding that and using different language, having a different feeling allows them, like you said, to be comfortable. But that's something that has to start right at the beginning because if that, because it, 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 it's so hard to turn that around once they feel that we're, like you said, labeling them or really blaming is what it is. Right. Um, unconsciously, that really is a hard one. And that, 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 was the key and of course it didn't work for everyone but but that that change in, in how to deal with people make them feel comfortable and not making them feel 
that they're bad people because they're on opioids, that's huge. And that right. allows them to feel heard, that right. alone. I think it's frustrating for you and I both because I think one thing that would change medicine dramatically is dramatically increasing the fee structure for doctors of any specialty to talk to their patients. I don't think anything is going to really change in medicine until physicians are giving the time and space to literally talk to their patients. Don't you agree? Yes. Fully. That's yeah. the thing that's most missing. And um, patients will tell you that. Doctors will tell you that. And you, um, there's all, there are all kinds of articles, even in the lay press, about uh, burnout in doctors. And I know that's something that you uh, feel strongly about and are working to help change. But it's a huge issue. And um, I agree. Well, the, the ironic thing about burnout is that the number one thing that prevents burnout is actually talking to the patient. Because, you know, medicine is sort of mind-numbing repetition. There's only about five to ten things that we offer over and over and over again. What makes medicine infinitely interesting is the mm. patient. Mm. Obviously, no two yeah. patients are the same. So it's, it's interesting talking to different physicians at different stages of, of their career because once they are given an opportunity, maybe they do it by choice, to start talking to the patients again, it changes mm -hmm. the game. So mm -hmm. right now we're in, a, we're in a production mode. So we're actually not allowed to talk to our patients. And you, you know about a friend in Oregon, of course, who lost his job because he was talking to his patients. And oh, so, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they have, it's actually multiple stories like that. So we're mm -hmm. being forced to be on a production mode and that's burning us out. The patients aren't being heard. We aren't allowed to connect to our patients. Then when we're burned out, we actually can't, connect to our patients very well because we can't even reach out for to ourselves, much less reach out to our patients. So it's a horrible cycle we're in right now. But going back to the opioid question, really, again, it's a combination of the sleep, the expressive writing, anger, all these things combine to actually calm down the nervous system. And people come off the opioids pretty easily once they've calmed down. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, in general, in general, there right. there are always outliers on either way. Some people can stop them overnight, and you know, uh, you know, very small percentage. And some people, you know, really can't get off them and end up on small small doses. Uh, but yes, it 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 um, it allows shepherds people toward um, reducing. Uh, their opioids and getting off of them absolutely um something about the expressive writing may i uh, sure. about the 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 um ah i lost of thought sorry yeah um, well, go well, go ahead keep keep going sorry. well again the, the bottom line is about feeling safe mm -hmm. and as a body chemistry so i mean as you know when you're in a heightened hyper alert hyper vigilant state of mind in other words you're not feeling safe the animal studies show you've actually double the nerve conduction so you increase the pain and that's what I'm saying. It's almost impossible to help somebody wean off of opioids if their anxiety levels are high because they don't feel safe. And so, again, it's a catch-22 because if you start arbitrarily dropping down the opioids against the patient's will, then there's no chance of getting them off the opioids or solving their chronic pain. Yes. It's the worst of all worlds. Right. And there's also the idea that for many people, some people are open to these other ideas, but it's not really Western medicine per se. Medicine in general does not really have a place for this. Um, the the, the non-opioid, but there's literature 
lots of tons of literature about it. It's in the lay press. It's in the uh, journals that how helpful this is. And, and, you know, as you know, co cognitive behavioral therapy compared to opioid treatment, short and long term, cognitive behavioral therapy far uh, outweighs in efficacy um, opioids. Right. And yet, and yet the system doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't. you know, people people have a hard time understanding it and 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 and, and even patients uh, as much as they might want to get off not necessarily want to get off them is some and and there's not a lot of support out there for 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 that so it's it's we don't it's it's hard sometimes for people to wrap their mind around the fact that these can be so helpful right so I think going back to the expression of writing for a second I mean I personally mm -hmm. still have a, a certain amount of disbelief around it in other words I quit writing mm -hmm. And my symptoms come back. If I start writing again, my symptoms drop down. And it just, there's a certain amount of disbelief even now after 20 years that it can be so powerful. But we've watched it happen over and over and over again. And I think one of the problems the patients have with chronic pain, you know, they're suffering horribly. And also, when you have such a simple intervention, it actually makes such a big difference. It's almost dishonoring their suffering in a way, don't you think? I mean, how, 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 can something, how can something so simple have such a dramatic effect on such a huge problem? Yes, that's a great, it's great you mentioned that. I think that's how people see it. They experience that. Um, but yes, it, yes, that's how people do perceive that. Uh, and um, it, 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 that was the, the, the portion of the people that, I continued to work to try to understand how to draw into the treatment. How can we be successful with people who are in that category? And I honestly never found a, when I was working, never found a real, even with a motivational interview, never found a way to, to, to draw in the people who, who were in that category. It was very, very hard. You mean, you mean the ones that were so angry that they couldn't really mm -hmm. engage, right? Yeah, engage. I, yeah. I mean, sometimes, once in a while, I, but, but generally, I didn't have success with, with, with those folks. Right. Um, I think that's both of our frustrations. I mean, it took me five years to figure this out, but I was, I thought everybody, everybody would want to get rid of their pain. Mm -hmm. Dr. Apkarian, by the way, who's a very famous, brilliant neuroscientist out of Chicago, pointed out again succinctly that people become addicted to their pain. They become addicted to their nociceptive input and they don't want to give it up. They may not know they don't want to give it up, but if you're angry, shut down, don't want to try new ideas, by definition, you're in deep trouble for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. But I don't yeah. know what percent of people are like that, but I bet it's over half of people in chronic pain actually don't want to give up their pain. I know it's, I know it's a good, yes, it's over half. That's it's over been half. my experience. Right. I, I, I have an idea about it, but okay. I'm yeah. So I think it goes back to what you were saying. Absolutely. So of course that a lot of this, these things are unconscious. The subconscious Dr. Um, Schubiner was the first one to turn us on to that literature about the subconscious. And that's clear now that a lot of things go on in the brain the body and the brain in this case, that that happen without our knowledge. And that's why the writing, I think, is important, because it brings to consciousness that. And even if we can't change the neurobiology necessarily permanently, 
we can change it for a time so that if we keep, like in your case, in my case, if we keep working on these things and doing the writing and doing the mindfulness, and we can bring those to consciousness, and right. it can it can really help. Right. Um, and and I think for some other people though, the pain always has meaning. Of course, that's the that's the thing, and that's what we would tell people: pain has meaning. And the meaning may not be that you have a broken spine or you have a pinched nerve or you have rheumatoid arthritis. It may be that you have another another kind of issue causing this pain and that's just being driven unconsciously. Right. Um, and and um, I think, and but for some people, they really don't want to get rid of the pain for for like abuse or uh, other kinds of terrible traumas, um, the pain, whether physical or mental, sometimes holds a place that they of a memory they don't want to give up. It's a deep, deep kind of thing. And so for some people, I think it's that. And, well, just to be uh, clear, when you say the word mental pain, I mean, the, the mental pain in my mind is by far and away the bigger problem than the physical pain. I mean, mm -hmm. physical pain isn't great. But the mental pain with a form of intense, unrelenting anxiety for most people is intolerable. And when I gave people the choice, surgically, say, look, I can get rid of your leg pain with surgery, and you have to live with the anxiety that you have, or we can help you drop your anxiety down, and you have to live with the pain. The vast, vast majority of people wanted to decrease their anxiety. It is flat out intolerable. And so, yeah, the mental pain is a huge problem. So, Joe, do you mind, without going into details about all the reasons why, you just had a little bit of a flare-up yourself this week, right? Just how, how the, <laughs> I did. I, I, I did. Don't, don't go into the details about why, but just just give if you, sure. just a really 30-second synopsis of what happened to you this week. Yeah, you know, um, wow. <laughs> Let me, how can I do that without revealing everything? No, no, no. There was a family this. issue. My, okay. my, my children talked to me about it, and... Um, um, had you know, it was about their mother. We're divorced now and everything, but right. something about the celebrating the Thanksgiving holiday, and she wanted something that, and 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 anyway, and I was made privy to this, and I, you know, we worked it out. Kind of, I worked it out with uh, my adult children, and 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 then I kind of forgot about it, and and I I just didn't, you know, I was exercising a couple of days in a row, and last week. I had the worst pain in my left leg, my God. And I had, I saw my chiropractor and everything. It, it didn't really help. And then a couple of days ago, yesterday actually, I realized that doing some, my own work, I realized, my God, I had totally sublimated this, totally forgot about it, and that I just really didn't want to have this discussion with <laughs> with my with my ex right. and and I having known that and bringing that to the surface seems to be healing this pain just fine right <laughs> so that's I mean, my I, personal I, story and I wrote like crazy right and I didn't even do it in the writing it was it was another way I, I found I, 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 I discovered it in just a, another discussion I was having it dawned on me oh my god Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing so, your story. I mean, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, me too. I have arthritis in my hip and my knees. And the triggers aren't always obvious. And often that I'll be going along, things seem just fine. All of a sudden, my hip and knee will just go crazy with pain. 
first of all, I would have noticed that I have quit the writing. And I think it's humbling for both of us. I mean, we teach stuff, we watch it, we've had success with it ourselves. So why in the world would we quit doing the writing? You know what I mean? But we do it. We're the well, same. We get to suffer too, like everybody else. Um, but it's it's very humbling. Yeah. Yeah, it takes time, and sometimes you don't really want to look at these things. You know, right. you want to push them under, and and um, and we do. <laughs> right. But <laughs> what our, I find fascinating uh, what I find fascinating about your story, though, because the intensity of your pain was pretty severe, right? Oh, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to to uh, go down with uh, with uh, Bar- Barbara, my you know, my wife, uh, to uh, to L.A. to see our grandkids. Uh, right. It was how painful it was. And it right. had nothing to do with that. Right. It was everything to do with something that, oh, this sounds weird, sounds like Groucho Marx story, not everything to do with uh, something else and nothing to do with, with, with that at all. Right. So, yeah, it's very, it's, you never know. It's very complicated sometimes, right. no, it's, it's but just very simple. Yeah, it's very fascinating. I mean, the, the human body is a very strong unit. There's 50 trillion cells. The nervous system, I mean, your body has something like a million pain receptors in every square inch of the soft tissues. And so it's really yeah. complicated. So I'm impressed also when I have a trigger or flare up, the pain is extreme. It's not subtle. So anyway, it's very, very, uh, very enlightening and yeah. very humbling. I, I, yeah. One other thing, if there's time, yeah. I just, uh, you know, the, the, the work that you, you've, you've really, uh, it's up Carrion's work that we saw, but of course, um, your, your wonderful literature, if I may, literature searches, um, you know, we're we're aware since well, maybe five years ago, I think that was published, maybe more, that I think it was up Carrion and Baliki's work that in Chicago that the the in chronic pain the pain the the process goes through not the nociceptive the pain sensing system in the brain, right. but the emotional system, right. and that's how this all connects. Right, it, that's how it really connects for us. Right, it's the same pain but a different driver. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. His work is unbelievable. That's right. So and so that's why I had the pain because I wasn't paying attention to the actual. Once I brought that up to the surface, that oh my God, I got to deal with this and the feelings I have and what's going to happen. Um, that took away. Um, I I might actually feel the fear that I had or or, or the issue, but that substituted for the pain, as it were. How that happens is 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 beyond what we know at this time, but, but, right. but it, it is, that's how it is. Yeah. But, it, but I also want to make it really clear to the listeners that, okay, so there's a trigger that set off the pain, but it's not psychological, it's a linkage system. So stress pathways and pain pathways are just connected. You know, the same that, that the neuroscientists have, that neurons that fire together, wire together. So it's just a connection of these circuits get fired up they're connected to the pain circuits, they fire up. And and so that's where it's a neurological issue, not psychological. Yes. It's really, that's what you have to understand. And also the body chemistry is a big deal because when you're fired up consciously or unconsciously, mm-hmm. it changes the body's chemistry. So what medicine right now, I'll just say the word has missed badly, is that chemical reaction that mediates the symptoms. So there's nothing psychological. It is changes in your body's chemistry that create the physical changes. It has nothing to do with psychology. It has to do with triggers and chemical reactions. And then you have physical symptoms. But um, anyway, well, Joel, thank you very, very much. I uh, will probably have a few more 
podcast together because we just barely touched the surface on so many different topics. But uh, again, it's just been a huge pleasure working with Joel over the last seven years. Even though I, I started the process with him as far as the doc concepts, we've been you know cross training each other for many many years, and so we both learned just a ton of things from each other. It's been just fascinating for me personally, just watching Joel in action, watching his patients do well. When he started working with me, I just I just watched a huge number of patients get better that I didn't have a chance at getting better. I mean, his ability to weigh people out, listen to them, adjust things accordingly to what their needs were was magical. So I couldn't do that in my surgical practice, but working with Joel over the years has just been one of the most enjoyable parts of my career ever. It's been fantastic. David, thank you. It's a great honor, and you do me a great honor, and and uh, it's my pleasure. I, I, uh, it was mutual. It so, was mutual. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joel Conico, for being on the show today and sharing his insights on treating chronic pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to return next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And remember to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.